Thanks, Luke and praise team. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 will be in verses 12 to 14 this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. I want to tell you about two kinds of people. One is typified by a person that is pursuing the modern American dream. Born to parents of meager or perhaps even modest means, this person grows up and and achieves um, an education and a degree from a, a good school. Then after receiving his or her degree, perhaps goes on to receive more advanced degrees in a specific, specialized area. This person then goes on into the workforce, slowly making advancements in the workplace, climbing the corporate ladder. Eventually, this person finds favor in the sight of his or her bosses and then rapidly ascends the corporate ladder, making more money than ever before. This person can afford more luxuries than they ever possibly thought that they could. Their house, their car, you name it, are of more worth than their parents ever had or their parents ever dreamed of. Along with the money comes a generous savings account, an annuity fund, various investments along the way, eventually retirement, a nest egg of investments large enough that for the rest of their life they can travel the world, they can play golf, they can hang out with the grandkids, they can relax on the beach. The American dream. The second person is typified by the late missionary John Chow, who died sometime between November 16th and 17th of this month. On the North Sentinel Island as he was trying to reach a previously unreached people group. He had arranged for fishermen to take him close to the island, and then he would kayak the rest of the way on his own personal kayak. Having made contact with this group some days prior, and having been shot at with bows and arrows while trying to make contact and trying to peaceably talk with them previously, He came back to the ship and he wrote this in his journal. God, I don't want to die, but if you want me to get killed with an arrow, then so be it. To his parents, he wrote this. You guys might think I'm crazy, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please don't be angry at them or at God if I get killed. He's 26 years old. This morning and for the next few weeks, Jesus is going to present to us the close of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to present to us two different, very different paths. Two very different people. One is the path that leads to eternal life and the other is the path that leads to destruction. And our purpose as individuals, as members of the body of Christ, as Christians, as those professing faith in Jesus Christ, is to discern which of these more accurately describes us. 
Which more accurately describes us together as a church body? With that in mind, let's look at our text, Matthew 7, 12 to 14. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it, enter by it are, are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There's a transition that occurs in this text between verses 12, verse 12 and verses 13 and 14. And Jesus is doing what any good preacher is doing. He's getting to the application of the sermon that we've been in for many months now. And you'll notice some similarities at each point in the application. This morning he'll be presenting to us two ways that we can walk down. Next week, two trees. The week after that, two judgments. The week after that, two lifestyles. And in all of these applicational comments, Jesus is going to be challenging us to consider the words that He's taught us in the Sermon on the Mount thus far. To evaluate our life truly thinking about where we don't measure up. Truly evaluating where we stand in the kingdom of heaven. And how much we want to really follow after Christ. And repenting of our sins where we see them in an effort to pursue holiness as defined by Jesus. In our text this morning, verse 12 could very well be a sermon in and of itself. Since I see verse 12 really closing out the main part of the sermon. And then verses 13 and 14 are really starting to apply the sermon. However, I don't think... That I do think that there is a connection between what's commonly referred to as the golden rule which we see in verse 12, and verses 13 and 14, where Jesus talks about a pathway that we walk down. Jesus is, is forcing us to consider in our life really as two choices, two pathways, if you will. But you and I really get frustrated by binary choices, don't we? I really, more than anything, I want a scale. I want a one to five scale. All right? I get it, five is following Christ with the gas pedal on the floorboard, that's fine. But I really want a four, maybe, somewhere in there that just is like not quite as full bore. I really want something that's just sort of coasting, like a three, just sort of a neutral. A two that's, you know, kind of, maybe it's a little bit bad, but not as bad as it could be. And then finally, the one. But that's not what Jesus does here. Jesus is telling us there is a forward and there is a reverse. You're either traveling forward or you're traveling backward. Jesus is saying you're either the Apostle Paul or you're Judas. But it leaves us asking, is there another option? Really? Just Paul or Judas? Is there maybe a, a Murphy somewhere in the middle? That more that describes me? Maybe Peter, before the Holy Spirit comes, I'll get out of the boat, but I'll probably sink. Just saying. I'm really just dying for some Peter right about now. So as we move into the part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus really forces us to evaluate our lives, we really need to do so on a two-point scale. 
yes or no, in or out, following or running. And where we see in Jesus' application our own failures, those that are called to called by him to repentance must change our actions, must evaluate our lives and change our actions. He closes out the sermon and he transitions into this application with what is traditionally called the golden rule. And there's a few observations that I want us to make about this passage as we go through. The first is this, that your holiness must be felt by others. Your holiness must be felt by others. Look at verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And this closes out the main body of the sermon. And we know that it closes out the main body of the sermon because there's a very similar phrase that Jesus uses back in chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So as the advice goes when you're public speaking, tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them and then tell them what you told them, right? And so it turns out that this is actually invented by Jesus. He does this here in the Sermon on the Mount. He opens the sermon with the same way, in the same way he closes it, with what fulfills the law and the prophets. And he sum, or, or in this case, what sums up the law and the prophet. He says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So this summary that Jesus gives here is not entirely new to Jesus. What he says here. It's not entirely new to Jesus. Similar things were said in Judaism prior to him. There was a, a rabbi that is, is quoted prior to Jesus as giving what is now referred to as the silver rule, where he said, Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. That's what he says. Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. That saying, though, isn't original to that rabbi. You can go back several hundred years before him, even, and find Confucius saying a very similar thing. Confucius' similar, uh, silver rule says this, What you do not wish for yourself, do not do to others. The silver rule. So it seems that there's many wise sages in the past that have come up with a very similar phrasing. But do you notice what Jesus does here? He doesn't just merely add his voice to the wise sages of the past. He's not just adding one more iteration of the exact same thing. Instead, he offers a different take. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Whereas in the past, it has been phrased in the negative. Jesus frames it in the positive. And really, that makes all the difference. If I were to follow the rabbi, or even Confucius, I could sit on my couch and do absolutely nothing and perform perfectly what they're prescribing, but not so with Jesus. With Jesus... It's different. Jesus sums up the ethical standards of God's law by defining it not by what you don't do, but by what you do. 
How you actually live and how you actually interact with others. In other words, in order to act in accordance with God's righteous standards, His people must actually do for others. We'll get similar things that Jesus says throughout the Gospels when He's asked to sum up the law. He'll say to us, You shall love, your neighbor, you shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And whereas many might summarize the ethical standards as thou shalt not, like we saw with the rabbi and with Confucius, Jesus summarizes it with thou shalt. Ethics in the kingdom of God is defined by what you do rather than what you avoid. But I wonder how often we describe Christianity to our kids or maybe our friends, as what you don't do, rather than what you do. We don't drink, dance, smoke, or chew, and we don't date women that do. <laughs> or to put it in the modern vernacular, basically you have to be a good person, stay away from bad things, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Share the gospel with somebody and ask them what they think gets them to heaven. And I guarantee you they will tell you that. Be good. Don't do bad things. The problem with that line of thinking is that Jesus has every opportunity to sum up the law and the Ten Commandments by telling you what you don't do. But he doesn't summarize the life of his followers as adherence to the Ten Commandments and based on what you don't do. Instead, he summarizes it by overwhelming action. Be consumed by what you're doing. Treating others as if they're priority number one. Treating others the way you want to be treated. Loving others as you love yourself. For you to be considered, in other words, holy by Jesus' righteous standards. In the standard of ethics of the kingdom of heaven, you can't merely avoid bad things. Holiness in heavenly standards is doing for others. But notice that he also doesn't say, do to others so that they will do to you. He doesn't say that either. The standards of the kingdom of heaven aren't contingent on reciprocity. They're not contingent on being paid back. We don't do for others with the idea that they'll repay us. We also don't simply do for others because they've already done for us. We do for others irrespective of the treatment that we receive in return. Now think about the difficulty of that for just a moment. What room does Jesus leave here for enemies? What about people you get frustrated with? What about pesky neighbors? What about family that you just can't seem to get along with? I know that's nobody in here at the holidays, right? It's not fresh on everybody's mind. How do you respond to people that cut you off on the road? Your spouse? Your children, 
your parents, your friends, maybe friends that have spurned you, Auburn fans, they need love more than anybody right now. The golden rule puts other commands of Jesus in perspective, does it not? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. When Jesus summarizes the law here, he makes it sound so easy. Right? It leaves us wondering, couldn't I just obey the golden rule and be fine? What's with all the rest of the Bible? Couldn't you just give me the golden rule and I'd be fine? Yeah, that would be fine if we could do it. But which of us, after understanding the golden rule, after really thinking about it, could really say that we can obey this perfectly? I don't know about you, but I find it difficult on a daily basis to escape my own selfishness. To actually wake up in the morning and not be selfish. Much less do for others as you would have them do to you. But even if I were to escape my own selfishness, even if I were to go out in the middle of nowhere and live as a monk around nobody and there escape, or actually it's okay to be selfish, there's nobody around, I guess, I don't know. But just to, to live by yourself with no one else around, even if I were to escape in that kind of seclusion and I were to get away from even my own flesh, I would still fall short of the holiness required by the kingdom of heaven. Because the Lord doesn't call us to the kind of holiness that's so mere that we can just refrain from sin privately or even publicly for that matter. It calls us to the kind of holiness that actually interacts with people. That's actually giving of ourselves completely to other people. Holiness that demonstrates to others the kind of love that God has demonstrated to you in Christ. And so while we're thinking about it, what are the odds that you can even perform this without first dedicating your life to following Christ? It's impossible. How can we possibly move in this direction? How can we possibly walk down, one of, down the, the lesser of the two paths that Jesus puts before us without first being radically transformed by the Spirit, because I don't know about you, but by nature I am selfish. I was first taught that when I got married. <laughs> then I learned it even more when I had kids. Because really, your selfishness, when you get married, you realize, I've been selfish this whole time. And then when you get, have kids, you realize we're selfish together. <laughs> Nothing can motivate you towards this but being radically transformed by the Holy Spirit. But praise God that there are people in our church that freely give of themselves to serve others. There were many that collected, uh, that recently contributed to the Thanksgiving meals that went out from our church 
to those in need. There are those every week that give of their time and plenty of their conveniences to watch children in our nursery that are there right now watching our kids, teaching our kids in worship. You are watching kids who will probably never thank you for parents who may never thank you. You are giving up either time in the service or time with other adults in small groups so that you can serve others. And many of you, you're long past time having your own kids in the nursery. Many of you are just serving out of the goodness of your own heart. Spirit-led, spirit-induced service toward others, not expecting payment in return. You're treating parents, young parents, the way you would want to be treated. By watching their children so that they can participate in small groups or in the service. If no one says a word to you, please know that we're grateful. And that nothing that you do goes unnoticed. We notice it and we're grateful. And it means a great deal. But parents of those young children, please make sure you thank those people that are helping with your kids. Whether it's sending them a card or going to actually tell them thank you. They're caring for your children. Express gratitude towards them. But that still, we still need to ask questions of ourselves as we think about the golden rule. There's still questions that we have to consider about Jesus' teaching here. First of all, do other people consider you their enemy? Are there people that consider you their enemy? Are you a person who brings peace and the love of Christ into every relationship? Are you actively seeking to impact the people around you, treating each person as you would want to be treated? I already know the answer to that because we're all fallen people. So all of us should be thinking of people with all of those questions. Thinking of people that do maybe consider me their enemy. People that I haven't brought the peace and love of Christ into the relationship. People that I'm not actively seeking to treat them as the Lord has treated me or as I want to be treated. What we realize after just a short while is that the golden rule is impossible for us to follow. How can we actually read the golden rule, Matthew 7, 12, and really think, I can perfectly follow this. There's absolutely no way we can. It's further evidence of the Christ, the kind of Savior that we need, who told us in Matthew 5, 17, that He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And we see in Matthew 7, 12, exactly what that means, that He came to, be, to perfectly treat others the way He would want to be treated. Bearing a cross, he now asks us to bear for him. Dying a death that he now asks us to die for him. In part, 
That's a death to self. For some, that may be a physical death, a death to the physical life itself. And for others, that's going to be a death to self. Denying selfish impulses and giving to others as you, doing for others as you would have them do to you. Your holiness must be felt by your neighbors. The second thing I want you to see in this text is the way to hell is filled with the self-indulgent. The way to hell is filled with the self-indulgent. Look at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. So Jesus shifts, now shifts to the application part of the sermon where he presents to us the two ways that we may go. But this isn't disconnected from the golden rule. After looking at verse 12, we should be saying to ourselves, well, the kind of righteousness that Jesus is requiring is hard. That's tough. To which Jesus is going to say to us in the next two verses, yes. In these two verses, he depicts life as two different paths, one as narrow and one as wide. For the wide path, the easy path, is the path that leads to destruction. And I, I take it by Jesus' words here when he says, uh, many enter it, versus in the next verse where he'll say, few, and we see that one leads to destruction, many are going to destruction, and few are going into eternal life. I don't think that he's giving a depiction of what heaven is going to be like, that there's only going to be a few people. There, I don't think that's what he's depicting. That we should be thinking that, that, well, there's the apostles, there's Paul, there's Billy Graham, there's Tim Tebow, there's a couple of others, and that's it. It's just there in, in heaven. I don't think that's what he's, what he's saying. John in Revelation sees, as Jeremy read a minute ago, sees a multitude of people. Sees a multitude. Well, how do we reconcile those two things? I think that he's saying, if you were to consider all of those born of earth, there are far many more that will walk down the wide and easy path than will go down the narrow path. But he also characterizes this path as the easy path. And this is clearly meant to represent more than just a, a lifestyle of resistance, but is more the lifestyle of the lost. Those that are, are characterized not by the righteousness of Christ, but by their own righteousness. He's categorizing, categorizing as wide and easy the path where right is determined in the eyes of the one walking down the path. So Jesus seems to be making this veiled reference to Proverbs 14, 12, which says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So these are people who are taking the path of, of least resistance, that are following their own desires, and that are indulging the flesh when it comes to their own standard of righteousness, their morals. John Stott says, it, uh, says about this way, he says this, There is plenty of room on it for diversity of opinions and laxity of morals. It's the road of tolerance and permissiveness. It has no curbs, no boundaries of either thought or conduct. Travelers on this road follow their own inclinations, that is, the desires of the human heart in its fallenness. Superficiality, self-love, hypocrisy, mechanical religion, false ambition, censoriousness, these things do not have to be learned or cultivated. Effort is needed to resist them. No effort is required to practice them. 
This is why the broad road is easy. At the same time, I don't want to make this group that Jesus is describing here out to be simply made up of Hitler and Charles Manson and the people like them. That's not what he's saying either. Many in this category will have been baptized in our churches. Many in this category will be voting members of our churches. Deacons, elders, preachers, even prophets. Many will have cast out demons in the name of the Lord. Many will have prophesied in the name of the Lord, yet he will say to them on that day, depart from me, for I never knew you. And the reason that we know that is because he tells us as much in just a few verses from now in verse 22. He tells us that there will be many caught off guard. Many that thought they were in, that find out they're not. Many that prophesied in his name. Many that preached in his name. Many that cast out demons in his name. And yet they find out on that day, depart from me for I never knew you. I fear that for far too long we as preachers have communicated the grace of God so cheaply so as to make it seem as though you're saved merely by getting in the waters of baptism or coming down front to talk to the preacher. As if to say that a lifestyle of obedience following baptism is simply optional. Perhaps pastors have done this because we wanted to pad the numbers of the role make it appear as though the churches are growing more than they really are. Or maybe it was because we didn't want to have tough conversations with the people in, we, in the pew when we noticed the kinds of behaviors that were coming. Whatever the reason, when we encounter these kinds of individuals, probably even people that you know in your own family, maybe even your kids, but particularly those people that call themselves Christians whose lives don't actually reflect an attitude of following Christ that isn't time to say, well, he was baptized one time, I remember. Well, I remember he used to be a member of that church a long time ago. Yeah, I, I, I think one time he professed faith in Jesus Christ, I think, pretty sure. That's a time to warn them about what Jesus says. Why do you call him Lord, Lord, and don't do what he says? If we really are brothers and sisters in Christ, then we're responsible for each other. We're responsible for each other. Understand that. We are responsible for each other. And we're here as a body to help each other carry the cross across the finish line. You understand that? That's what we're here to do as a body. To help one another bear the burden of the cross so that each of us makes it across the finish line. That's why we are together as a body. That means that obedience to Christ is expected of us. And we should expect it of one another. That means that we should hold each other accountable to what we say that we believe. And that's true for me as well. If I were to ever disqualify myself as an elder and as a teacher in the church, the most loving thing that you could do for me is fire me. And in love, convince me that I'm in sin and that I need to repent. 
And I'm telling you this now because if that day ever did come, God forbid, I probably won't tell you that. But that's for me as well. With the help of our brothers and sisters to encourage us, to love us, to care for us, and at times to correct us. We want to bear our cross across the finish line. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, instead of depart from me, for I never knew you. In the end, it's not our own definitions of righteousness that matter. It's Jesus' definition of righteousness that counts. And the way to hell is filled with the self-indulgent. The last thing I want you to see in this text is the way to heaven is sprinkled with the blood of the martyrs. The way to heaven is sprinkled with the blood of the martyrs. Look at verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. He says, as the alternative to the broad and easy way, the way is hard that leads to life. And the word that he uses there for hard is the same word that is used in other places for affliction or for tribulation. Jesus will say, uh, uh, will say later in the Gospel of Matthew, as Luke quoted a couple of weeks ago, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Listen to this. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Well, which is it? Is the yoke easy, or is the way hard? Make up your mind, Jesus. Tell me one way or the other. Which is it? Is it easy, or is it hard? And I think the right way to understand what Jesus is saying here about the way being hard is that it's filled with affliction. And therefore, it's narrow and few find it. Or many even desire to walk down it. You can look down the road and you can see affliction coming. And many just keep on walking because there's no desire to walk down that path. This is similar to how Paul and Barnabas are encouraging the disciples in the churches in Antioch and, and many other cities around where they say that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's the same root word there in tribulations and the way being hard. Tribulations and hard. Same, same word that's being communicated in those two Passages, And I think the idea harkens back to what Jesus told us would be true of people that followed after him way back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, where he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the truth is, that's been borne out over the last 2,000 years where followers of Christ have been persecuted, even put to death, simply for following Christ. The reality is that when a person is living by the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven, it becomes evident that their loyalty is to another kingdom and another king. And therefore, they're a threat to the established order. Not by what they do, but who they're loyal to. Now, wait a minute. Are we saying that we can only be a, that, that to be a Christian means that you have to go get killed by a foreign tribe in the middle of nowhere. Well, no, that's not what I'm saying. And I don't think that's what Jesus is necessarily saying, though I think it's on the table. 
It's obedience that Jesus is calling for. It's obedience to his will. Which will include dying to self-indulgence. Dying to mechanical religion. In other words, just being here simply because you have to. Because you feel like it's expedient for you. Because what would people think if I wasn't here? It's mechanical religion. Dying to superficiality. Dying to false ambition. Dying to the American dream. Dying to the unbiblical concept of retirement. Dying to the lap of luxury. But let me tell you, before you can opt for the narrow path, you have to have a heart that's radically changed by the Spirit. Because by our nature, we're selfish. And all of those things sound great to my flesh. Now, who looks at those two options, those two paths, and thinks to themselves, yes, I'll take the path that includes the rejection of luxurious living and includes potential dismemberment. Who looks at those two paths and says, yes, that's the one. I clearly want that. No one except those whose hearts are convinced that the end of life is eternity, not retirement. And who decide now to live for that. People whose hearts are set on glorifying God with their lives and denying their own self-indulgence. And when it comes to the two lifestyles, the American dream or the missionary, which more closely describes your life right now? Do your ambitions for your life align more closely with the average person climbing the corporate ladder? Perhaps even the, the average retired person in our world? Or with Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for many. As of this moment, John Chow's body is still on that island. They know that the tribe has it, but many are too afraid to go get it. The last words in his journal were these. Please live your lives in obedience to whatever he has called you to. And I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe are at hand. And I can't wait to see them around the throne of God, worshiping in their own language. As Revelation 7, 9 to 10 states, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Are we as followers of Christ and His church willing right now at this very moment to risk everything for His glory? What path are you on? Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
words are just inadequate. It's very difficult to communicate. It's a challenge and a struggle every week. So on the one hand, feel so inadequate and often hypocritical. And yet stand up and preach. Lord, you know what a struggle this is for me. How difficult I find this, even in my own life. To forego conveniences. And to push the envelope for your kingdom. So many times I would much rather play it safe. I would much rather dwell in security, comfort, and ease the narrow path does not sound all that appealing to my flesh and yet you've you've called us to that and by your spirit you've enabled us to walk down it some of us are further down the path than others but all of us are growing more accustomed to trusting you. To trusting that you're good. And that by your spirit and with the help of your saints, that you will help us limp across the finish line. I pray for us as a people Not only would we be convinced by your word, as we gather here, we listen to it being preached and talked about, and we gather in our small groups and we discuss it, but that we would live it on the outside. That people would see it in the way that we respond to them, and the things that we do for them, and how generous we are. How kind we are. How loving we are. That all the careless words would be taken captive and discarded. That our social media posts even would be edifying to people. That by the way we live, by the things we do, and even by the way we die that people would look at us and say, there is something different about those people. And Lord, if by that way of living, persecution is increased, then bring it on. With it comes confirmation that we are on the narrow path. 
and confirmation that in the end, we have life. We're not scared of that. We trust you. We know that you're good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.